You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Okay. If you are wondering, uh, still wondering why Hope and Commonwealth has mer have merged together, uh, it's because six months ago, Aaron realized he was going to have to talk about sex and hell in the same night. <laughs> and he thought, maybe I could get someone else to do this. That's right. That's right. There's no question that we have a, a big topic ahead of us tonight, a one that is a source of a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of confusion. And um, I know that I can't possibly do this topic justice, okay? Which is one of the reasons I'm so excited that Teresa's here with us tonight. She's gonna help us navigate this, but I can speak from my own experience and try to give a little bit of insight uh, into these words of Jesus and what they mean, and particularly what the impact that they've had on my life. Okay, so that's what I'm gonna do, and then we're gonna, we're gonna hear from Teresa in a minute here, or in a, a number of minutes. Don't get excited, I'm gonna talk for a little bit. Um, but I believe if we take this seriously, what Jesus has to share here, then it has the ability to completely transform your life. And I, and I say that, I know I say that every week. This week, I can really speak from experience. Okay, this idea and Jesus, the way Jesus speaks about and talks about sex has been incredibly transformative for me. And I'll share a little bit about that in a bit here. So um, let, let, me, let me pray for us again, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into this passage. So Father, please calm our hearts, God. Calm our minds. I'm so grateful that we were able to sing that song together. It's such a beautiful song, an important song as we as we address uh, a difficult topic here. So I pray for each one of us that you would give us peace, that whatever is already coming up in us as we, as we hear about this, um, that you would just give us a sense of peace and you'd allow us to really hear your words and experience your love and grace throughout all this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are uh, well over six months into our deep dive into Jesus's sermon on the mount. And in recent weeks, we've been exploring the question, how could this kingdom community of moral rejects and social outcasts, as described in the verse, first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, how could they possibly have this transformative effect on the world like salt and like light? That's what it says in, in verse 13 and 16, that you, this community that the rest of the world has thrown out, that, the, that everyone sees as small and insignificant, actually has the ability to transform this world, just like a pinch of salt can transform an entire meal, and a small flicker of a candle can light up the darkest of rooms. So how could this be? Well, in um, verses 17 through 20, Jesus says that you will do this not by throwing out the scriptures, because this is what Jesus was being accused of that, that by the religious, that he was just throwing out the scriptures. He says, we're not actually doing that, but actually this community will be the fulfillment of the scriptures, the fulfillment of the heart and the intention behind the scriptures. Jesus says later in his ministry in Matthew 23, that we fulfill the heart and the intention behind the scriptures when we love God with all of ourselves and love our neighbor more than ourselves. 
Okay, so that, that is what this community is called to do. So being in Jesus's kingdom community, it's not about an outward obedience to a set of rules, but an inward renovation of the heart, as Dallas Willard talks about. It's a community of people whose hearts are transformed by Jesus. And because their hearts have been transformed by the love of Jesus, their love for the world will transform the world. And now Jesus is taking us through specific examples of how this happens. So last gathering, Aaron talked about murder. God makes it really clear. Don't murder one another. It's not good for the community when we, when we murder one another. Everyone did good with that, right? This past week. Okay. We'll see how, we'll see how this next one goes. Um, but Jesus affirms that. He says, yeah, don't murder each other. But if you really want to live according to God's will, then don't even hold on to anger against one another. When you allow anger to fester in your heart, even if you don't act on it, you are murdering that person in your heart. You are degrading their humanity. You are denying them of the image of God that they were made in. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you allow anger to exist inside of you, it will inevitably destroy you and it will destroy community. Some of us know firsthand how true that is. Jesus says in my kingdom community, this cannot Stand. So don't murder people, right? That's the, that's the big, big thing. But then Jesus says, if, if you truly want to be salt and light in the world, then don't even hold on to anger towards one another. You've actually murdered one another in your heart. So tonight, uh, Jesus is going to do a similar thing, but he's going to go on to something different. Okay? And he, and he says, this is a, another practical example of what life looks like in this kingdom community. So that's where we're at. In verse 27, he says, you've heard it said. Do not commit adultery. Okay, in Exodus chapter 20, Moses is given a set of laws that expresses God's will for his community. And number seven says, don't commit adultery. Don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse, someone that you have not committed your life to, and they have not committed their life to you. It's destructive not only to you and the other people involved, but it destroys community. Okay, it does damage to relationships, and it can have a harm, harmful ripple effect throughout a community of people. We've all seen this happen. What, what affairs can do to a family. What infidelity can do to a church community. Adultery is destructive. Jesus affirms that. Now, if I think we were to go out, if we were going to go out on Gay Street and we were going to survey people walking by, most people would agree that murder is a bad thing for our city. Unless you're actively involved in murdering other people, you're going to say, yeah, murder's a, a, a bad thing. Now, if we did that um, with adultery, I, I don't know if we'd get quite the same response. It might be a little bit more mixed. But in general, people would say, yeah, adultery, you should probably avoid that. It's not good uh, to, to sleep with someone else's spouse or sleep with someone who's not your own spouse. But Jesus, um, in Jesus' time... Among the Jewish community, adultery was severely condemned, okay? It was, it was universally condemned and, and even punishable by death. And so they take this really seriously. And Jesus affirms that. He said, you, you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't sleep with someone else's spouse. That's a good measure. Okay, I'm not doing away with that. It's a good measure of God's will for his community. But then in verse 28, he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Think about that. Jesus doesn't say 
don't commit adultery, and while you're at it, don't don't lust either. Okay, he says, he says that, and he says if you are lusting, you've already committed adultery. It's the same thing. That thing that you take so seriously, that thing that you stone people for, yeah, you're doing that. That's what he's saying to to the Jewish community here. You call it something different. You call it lust, but to me, it's the same thing. It's adultery. This is pretty shocking, and I think if you were, again, if we were to do our survey on Gay Street, most people would be like, you're crazy. That is not the same thing at all, just like anger and murder. But Jesus says it is. So, so first, I think we need some clarity as to what Jesus means by looking at someone lustfully. Okay, does it mean a glance? Does it mean a stare? Does it include just noticing that someone is attractive, or, or does it, is it only when we imagine sexual acts with a person? Okay, all those questions are probably not the right questions to ask. Most biblical scholars agree that what Jesus is talking about here is intent. What is our intent? Whether it's a prolonged stare or a brief glance, what matters is the intent behind the look. What is going on in your heart as you see that person? ES, the ESV is a, a different Bible translation, and, and it translates this verse in this way. Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, excuse me, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. N.T. Wright says, anyone who gazes at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery. Anyone who gazes at a woman in order to lust after her. Tim Mackey, my favorite biblical scholar, says, anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire, has committed adultery. So what is the intent as you glance at that person walking by what, or stare at that person across the room or, or on the screen? What is going on in your heart? That is what Jesus is concerned about. And he says, if it is in order to fuel or satisfy sexual desire, it is the same thing as having an affair with that person. Now, I'll say out loud what I think many of us are thinking is, why, why are you so serious about this, Jesus? Like, why, what is the big deal? Okay, really, isn't lust, isn't this, it's like this private, internal thing. No one knows about it. It doesn't hurt anyone. Like, what does it matter? Our culture tells us to minimize pain, maximize pleasure, right? Isn't that all this is? And this is where I think we need to step back and, and talk about what does Jesus think about sex? How does Jesus define sex? Because Jesus, though people in our culture may accuse him of this, he is not prude. Okay? He's not squeamish or disgusted by sex. In fact, I would argue, and, and, and many people would argue, that Jesus actually celebrates and values sex far more than our world does. And this might be hard for us to believe in a culture that emphasizes sex to such an unprecedented degree, but the reality is our world actually diminishes the value of sex and makes it worthless. It's all about your own pleasure. So do whatever gives you the most pleasure as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Okay, that's it. <clears throat> Regardless of what you think about sex, whether you think it should be something restricted to the marriage relationship or something that's practiced freely with anyone who is willing, you, you have to agree that Sex has the ability to do a ton of damage, a ton of damage. Okay, if, if we were to survey this room alone, we would hear story after story of the deep pain and hurt that is caused when people prioritize their own physical pleasure over true connection and intimacy. 
And nothing demonstrates that more than when we lust after someone else. That we are taking that person, their body, or parts of their body, and we are doing whatever we want with it in our minds in order to experience pleasure. And there's literally no connection, no commitment, no intimacy. It's the physical act completely separated from deep emotional and spiritual connection. Jesus believes that the physical act of sex cannot be separated from intimacy and commitment. So in other parts of the Gospels, Jesus addresses this. He says, like most big questions that Jesus has asked, he always goes back to the first two pages of the Bible. Okay, when we read the story of two people who are in the garden, they're naked and unashamed, okay, fully seen and fully known by one another. There is trust, there is connection, there is vulnerability, there is commitment. Okay, the, the Bible says that they knew one another, okay, and they, they created a child together. And, and it's not to say that um, every sexual encounter needs to be result in making a baby. I certainly hope not, because a lot of babies, but, but the purpose of this story uh, is, it, the, the purpose of this story in Genesis is that sex is presented as a picture of God's relationship, the, God, uh, the relationship that God desires with us. Okay, that's how sex is presented, because think about it. In the beginning, God created humans, and they were in his presence, naked and unashamed. There's trust, there's intimacy, there's connection, there's commitment. And God, he invites them into a relationship where they become co-creators with him. It's a creating relationship. Even the word um, for sex in the Bible, it's often translated as no, and it's not because the, the biblical translators want to avoid saying sex. Okay? It's not like when you say, like, mom and dad are folding the laundry. Like, that's, that's the word, okay? No, it's like... You don't use that? What do you guys use? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Q&A portion. Um, uh, so, so the word for no is yada. Okay, Y-A-D-A. Okay, yada. And it's the same word that is used most often to describe God's desire to know us. It's the word that's used in the Psalms when, when David says, God, search my heart and know my inmost being. It's the same word that's used to describe the sexual encounter between two people. It's to know, yada. So sex is intended to be a picture of the deep intimacy that we were created for with God and with one another. So the physical act of sex, if it's separated from that deep and spiritual intimacy, what happens? It tears us apart. It tears us apart. It robs us of our humanity. It degrades the image of God in us and in one another. And, and any of you have, who have been a victim of sexual abuse, any of you who, who have found yourself in a sexual relationship that you didn't want to be in or, or have been addicted to pornography or the countless of other ways where we separate the physical act from the deep emotional and spiritual intimacy that it was intended for, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's really destructive. It's really destructive. So lust, though it may seem private and internal, even if no one knows about it, no one is hurt, it is reinforcing that separation even more. 
and it becomes harder and harder to experience the deep intimacy that we were created for with God and with one another. So, so what do we do with this? Because I would guess every single one of us on some level have experienced this. You know, sex separated from that deep emotional and spiritual intimacy, whether it's lust, whether it's an actual encounter with someone. There's, there's a lot of different ways. But we've all experienced this on some level. Well, Jesus says in verse 29 and 30, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, so what do we make of this? Yeah, that sounds very severe, right? And I've, I've read this many times throughout my life. Uh, I've, I've taken, I think, wrong things from it at, time, uh, at times. Jesus, there's no question that Jesus takes this very seriously. There's no question about that. But he is not promoting self-mutilation. If he was, he forgot a very important body part. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> um, so, what is he doing here? Um, Jesus, does anyone know the, the book that Jesus quotes more than any other book in the Bible? Or, or references more than any other book in the Bible? Anyone? What's that? No, but he probably he's probably a lot. It's okay. It's it's the Psalms. I didn't know either, but he does. It's the biggest, so it makes sense. Um, Jesus references the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible in his teaching. And in the book of Psalms, the eye, the hand, and the foot are constantly used as images to represent our perspective. Okay, the way we see things. Our, our actions, the way we engage with the world, and our, and our foot is our path, the direction that we are going in the world. So, so what he is saying, it's sort of shorthand, for, and he's using these images, and he's saying that if you are lusting after another person, then the answer is not lust management. It's not lust management. Instead, what we need is a new perspective. What we need is a new way of viewing sex and viewing one another. What we need is a new way. We need to rethink how we engage in our relationships with one another and how we engage in our relationship with God. We need a new direction. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. He's saying we need a new perspective. We need a renovation of our heart is really what he's saying. When we define sex in the way that Jesus does, as a picture of the deep love and intimacy that God desires with us, when we understand the significance and the meaning of sex, it's very hard not to see how destructive lust is to ourselves and to others. Lust objectifies and dehumanizes another person for your own pleasure. It is the exact opposite of the way God sees us and treats us. He loves us unconditionally and gives us the complete freedom to love him in return or choose not to. Okay, that's how God loves us. So when we lust, we are viewing, um, we are viewing that person as an object. Okay? We are using their image for our own pleasure and then throwing them out. And we can't dismiss it by saying it's an internal private thing because if we've learned anything in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've learned that in his kingdom you can't separate between the internal being, our heart, and our external actions. 
to Jesus, they are the same. And we all know what's, in, what's inside eventually comes out. Okay, we can't separate. So Jesus' response to lust is not lust management, but a new perspective on sex and what it means to be human. So I want to conclude just briefly by sharing my story in this area, and then I'm going to have Teresa come up. But, um, when I was, I was first introduced to porn in third grade, I didn't realize it was, it was that early um, until I was doing the math last week, and I was like, yeah, it was third grade. Third grade by an older neighbor, um, pulled out his dad's magazines, and, and we looked through them. And, and those images are, are stuck with me for a long time as a third grader when you're, you're, you know, your mind is still forming. And there was other experiences, similar experiences as I grew up and got older. And it commu- they all communi- communicated to me the same thing, that from a young age that sex and women exist primarily for my pleasure. And it sounds awful to say, but reflecting back on the way I thought and the way I acted, and even if I wouldn't have said it, I believed that. And everything I saw on on TV and the internet and and in the media just reinforced that belief. I mean, women are constantly objectified in our world. And the message the world sends is exactly that, that women and sex exist for the pleasure and satisfaction of men's sexual desire. That's the message. That was the the overarching message that I received in my life. So um, I bought into that message. And as a result, uh, lust and porn has been a consistent struggle for the majority of my life. It really has. And and as a teenager growing up in the church, I during the purity movement, right, in the 90s and the 2000s, I knew this was not good. Okay, it was said to me all the time. I knew it was not good and that it needed to be dealt with. So I did everything I was told to do. I joined men's groups and had accountability partner partners and, and contact blockers when those came out. Um, I did all sorts of books and video studies, literally everything. Um, I could try so that I could try to manage my lust and my addiction to porn. And, and some of this worked for periods of time, but I never really dealt with the problem. And, and I've come to in the in the last few years, I've come to realize that the underlying message that I was receiving in the church was actually the same exact message I was receiving from the world. Women and sex exist for the pleasure and satisfaction of men's sexual desire. The church just tagged on within the confines of marriage. That was it. And it never really dealt with the real problem that my perspective on sex and women needed to be totally transformed. I just realized in the last year, like, whenever we talked about sex, we were split up men and women. I never heard my whole life, until Nicole and I processed this more, I've never heard a woman describe to me what it feels like to be objectified and what it feels like to be used and taken advantage of or to know that women are. I never understood that. I never had an older woman uh, uh, invest in my life in a meaningful way other than my mom. But even then, it's like I was talking to my mom about this, like, I'm I was getting something from that relationship. She's my mom. I never had a meaningful, like all this stuff, it was lust management and separation. They have the two things that Jesus is like, don't do those things. I I believe that the answer to my lust was basically grit your teeth and bear it until you're married. Then you have an acceptable outlet for your sexual desire. 
And what happened in my marriage and, and so many other marriages was that all of these objectifying and dehumanizing thoughts that I had been given throughout my life got dumped on Nicole as soon as we were married. I and pastors and counselors and marriage books either implied or explicitly said that it was her responsibility, her duty to satisfy my sexual desire. Whereas it says in the book, Every Man's Battle, if you've read that book, to be a merciful vial of methadone so that I don't go to porn or lust after another woman. It's literally what it says in that book. What an awful view of sex. It's no wonder we have just as much problems with this area in the church as everywhere else in the world. So right off the bat, I was taught that in my marriage, I was to expect the physical act of sex regardless of whether or not the emotional and spiritual intimacy was there. And as you can imagine, that mindset set us up for a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, particularly for Nicole. So I'll conclude with this, and then I have Teresa come up. Um, lust management did not get rid of my problem. Marriage did not get rid of my problem. But about a year and a half ago, Jesus began to tear out my eye. He began to give me a new perspective, to transform my perspective around sex and sexual desire. And, and it really has been a transformation. And I can tell you that I have experienced more freedom and more wholeness in this area than ever before in my life. All the lust management, all the accountability, not that, that, not that those things aren't helpful at times, but nothing changed my life and perspective like Jesus tearing my eye out and changing my perspective. And there's so much more that could be said, but I want to continue this conversation with Teresa Dunn. So if you all could give her a hand, we're going to have her come on up. Um, Teresa, thanks for being here. So, uh, yeah, we'll angle a little bit. Um, this feels, this is very special. I've, I've listened to you talk about sex uh, a lot over the last couple of weeks. Listen to every podcast I could find that you've been on. They're all amazing. I'm a little scared. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Teresa is a licensed family and marriage counselor who specializes in sex therapy and trauma. Uh, would you like, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? She's a mother and... Yeah, I, uh, so I've been a therapist for about 38 years, which sounds a little bit old. Um, and I really didn't intend to get into sex therapy at all. Uh, I was working with a lot of... Uh, sex trauma victims. Uh, we lived in Chicago for a number of years, and that was a, a big part of my practice. I'm working with couples working through that. And when I moved to Knoxville, um, we had Loyola University right next door to us, and they are one of the premier sex therapy programs in the country. And so if I ever had anybody who needed that work, I just referred there. And when I got to Knoxville, for those of you who don't know, Loyola's a Catholic school and uh, system, and so they have a biblical worldview about sex and sexuality. When I moved to Knoxville, there literally was not one, that I could find one person who was a believer who was also a certified sex therapist. And so it's a big, I oftentimes say if you are needing open heart surgery, 
get your Christian friends to pray. Just get the best cardio surgeon you can get. It doesn't really matter whether he's a believer or not. Get the best surgeon. But when it comes to this area of sexuality, the biblical worldview really is pretty critical, and that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. So that's kind of how I stumbled into the whole sex therapy thing. But it also, has, the funny thing is, because I am a believer, and because most churches and believers have a hard time talking about sex because it's kind of uncomfortable for most people, I ended up getting invited a lot to talk about sex. So <laughs> thus, I'm here tonight and ended up being on podcasts and things like that. So. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, one of the, I think, most important things that we do tonight is define sex and, and redefine sex for a lot of us. You have this term that you use called whole person sex. Would you mind breaking that down for us? Yeah, and I want to be clear. We're talking about a biblical view of sexuality. You will get different definitions about sex depending on what area you're in, who you talk to, whatever version, right? And so I do want to be clear what I'm talking about tonight is a biblical view of sex and sexuality. And I believe that one of the things that much of what you talked about tonight, Charlie, was, you know, sex is pervasive. You know, every time you turn on the TV, it's here. And we tend to think, oh my gosh, we look, we, we have way too much emphasis on sex in our culture. But the reality is we have way too little emphasis on sex in our culture. We have reduced sex down to just a one-dimensional uh, physical aspect and many of the definitions culturally are just physical pleasure and what you think of in terms of sex which is intercourse right but that's the physical act of sex but God as it is he created sex to be his whole person his view of sex and sexuality was that it is this deep knowing of another person and one of the reasons that God and this is what in the church we've done such a poor job of is we we we, we, the just say no movement, right? That you, if you grew up in church, you may have heard a lot, the purity culture, the silver ring thing that you did, um, all those kinds of things. And, and the intent was great. It was to help you understand that God really wants sex preserved for marriage. And so just say no to sex outside of marriage. What we didn't do was give people a, a vision for what they were saying yes to which is this whole thing that sex is not just this physical act. There's this deep, deep knowing that God desires for us to have with one another, and that as we deeply know one another emotionally, so the things, the places that we feel vulnerable in, the places that we carry shame in, to be known by another person in that arena is a deep, deep knowing, and it takes time, you talk about hard work, is to be known on that level. To be known from a, a mental standpoint. In other words, what are your dreams? What are your thoughts? What are your views? And oh, good Lord, in the middle of COVID and political scenes and all that, we have shrunk down in that significantly, right? Because it's such a dangerous world out there to share many times what our thoughts are, what our values are, how we're working through and struggling through dynamics of whatever things are there, but the ability to sit with another person and share what might be even a controversial thought and to be truly listened to and heard, respected, regardless of whether you agree or not. We have lost that art in our culture, if you haven't noticed. Um, that ability to do that is another way of being deeply known 
uh, and, and to learn and grow and sharpen. That scripture talks about sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. Uh, so physically, it's kind of the last piece of that. So, oh, and spiritually, to, to talk about the places in our lives that we're, um, both our relationship with God, where we struggle, hopefully in your micro, micro churches, is that what they, in the micro churches, hopefully those are communities where you can talk about uh, maybe what you can't do in a big room like this, about the places, the questions you have about God, the places where you don't understand what in, what is he talking about? Cut off your hand. What is he talking about? Like, I don't get this. Or, or as I try to live out my life, I don't know how to do this. And God doesn't seem good to me in this moment. And so I'm able, when I'm in a community where I can share those kinds of things, right? When we're flying high and life is good and we're, Jesus is blessing all the parts of our lives, those are easy things to share with any room, anywhere, right? But when we're in those places of hard and struggle, our marriages, our when, when what we understand about scripture and how we're and how life is working out don't line up, where can we go and be known and talk about those things? And so God is saying, I want to, I want to know you that deeply, and I want you to be known that deeply in a human relationship. And once we've done all the hard work of that emotional mental and spiritual oneness, now I'm ready to enter into this covenantal thing, this ever forever thing called marriage that says, okay, I know the depths of you to the degree I know that none of us know one another fully, even if you've been married, I've been married 40 years. Um, I still plumb the depths of my husband, right, to know him. But as we know those parts, as we do the hard work of that, and then we give over our bodies to one another. Sex becomes an expression, a fruit, if you were, of that deep knowing. And that is a is that is very different than the buzz of the culture, right? Uh, I always say the culture's view of sex is is kind of a uh, like a ride at Dollywood, right? It's not that, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about in the, in the church, I think, sometimes too, was if you have sex outside of marriage, you might like it. It might be amazing, actually. Your body might respond, and you, the, the full pleasure of that, it's not like that's not going to work just because you're not married, right? So it's not that sex is not pleasurable outside of marriage. It's that it becomes empty, outside of a covenant. And it's kind of like the rides at Dollywood. After you've ridden them about 10 times, <laughs> there's a reason Dollywood comes out with a new ride every year. Because it grows old and the excitement or the energy of that gets boring. Because unless the whole person depth is there, it quickly loses its energy. That's where the porn industry, by the way, is, making, is a multi-billion dollar industry partly because it builds on itself. You have gateway porn, but that becomes boring and you don't get the same high or energy out of that pornography, so you have to go to the next level. And then you go down the rabbit hole of sexual addiction, ultimately, is where that will lead you. Now, does that mean that every person who looks at porn ends up being a sex addict? No. But it opens the door to that. And it becomes a substitute 
for deep intimacy, which is what we're made for, instead of, um, I, was, I liken it to junk food. Junk food will fill your belly, but it doesn't nourish your body. And sex outside of God's intention will fill your belly, but it won't nourish your soul. That was a long answer. No, that's great. And to your point, like, I, I just noticed when I, in my struggle with porn, it would not only create a, like, not just in my sexual relationships, it created a distance in every relationship. And it was harder to connect with people intimacy, intimately when that was going on. And, um, it's just there's interesting. A, there's a great a whole study uh, on, uh, it's called the butterfly effect. That, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but they took all these these butterflies that were in mating season, and they released them into a room that had all these really bright fake butterflies with neon bright butterflies in the room, and the butterflies were drawn to the vibrance of the colors of the fake butterflies, and they ignored the other live butterflies, and they kept trying to mate with the little image butterflies that weren't real. So that's kind of a... Yeah. Um, that's great. Thank you. Um, so you you counsel a lot of couples, women, um, and you see a lot of the damage that has been done, particularly in Christians that come into your office. What could you kind of um, help us to see how the kind of the struggles with sex and sexuality really affect people deeper than just, oh, I lost my virginity and now I'm in marriage. So there was a podcast you talked about how it feels sexual dysfunction. There's different ways that our ideas about sex cause those sorts of things. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that. I'll, I thought that was fascinating. There are about three roads that connect to that. Okay. A lot, but I'll try to. You can pick one. Well, one is <laughs> you know, if there's been sexual abuse, for example, I work with both males and females, but mostly females who've been sexually abused. And so much of the evil that is done in sexual abuse is it deeply affects the sense of self, the sense of value, the sense of worth in a person. And so then when I enter, in, if I'm then a sexually abused and I've not worked through those things and God hasn't yet redeemed those places in me and I enter into marriage, sex is something that I see as dirty as something that is taken from me as opposed to a gift that I bring and offer to a relationship. It's not a fullness of me, but rather a violation of me. And it is that pairing in our mind is very, just because we marry somebody who loves us and who we love, that pairing doesn't just go away. And many times for abuse victims, they actually have to fantasize about the abuse in order to be aroused. And so lots of work has to be done to renew the mind Right, and to reclaim what God intended. And so that so there's the sexual abuse side of that. For men, that has more to do with a sense of feeling um, uh, shame, feeling weak, feeling uh, powered over. And so it's very difficult sometimes for men to assert their masculinity when they've been abuse victims. So all of that piece, again, you think about the image of God and what God intends for men to to embody and women to embody that all of that gets distorted. So abuse is one round of it. Then there's what I now determined uh, our call, I didn't originally do this, but I'm seeing it, is in our hookup culture, we now have what I call self-abuse, 
where we willingly involved, we're engaged. Usually this happened in college where uh, there's just a lot of hookup sex and it's just a normalized part of the culture. And the clients that were coming in had all the same symptoms as my abuse victims, but they'd never been abused or violated in that way. And so it was very difficult for them to identify that level of damage, but they don't know how to enter into relationship and be, be whole and connected and intimate. Sex is just sex. That's what our culture has sold, is that sex is just sex. And to make it anything less, more than that, is especially as a woman, is kind of, you're kind of weak. Uh, if sex, if you can't just kind of have sex and let it be what it is. One of the things that you were talking, Charlie, that I wanted to talk about too, is you were talking about how your own struggle, and I understand because of your own journey, you understand from the male perspective, the whole uh, objectifying of women. But one of the things that shifted in the 70s, early 80s, was Madonna. And Madonna flipped some of what you're talking about in its head, uh, because while men were objectifying women, and women were in the one-down position, what the women in the late 70s and 80s came to understand is, if we can shut off emotionally, if sex is about power and objectification, if as a woman I can shut off my heart, I'm in the power position. You look at the, ah, uh, oh, there's a Madonna video. I can't even remember what it is. I don't think it's Material Girl, but it's one of her videos. She looks just like Marilyn Monroe, but Marilyn Monroe was the pinup girl of the 50s and early 60s, right? Madonna takes that whole image, flips it on its head, but you've watched the video. She's the dominant figure, and she has all the, the boys under her feet. She steps on them, and she's in a black leather sexual outfit, and she's dominating. She's making a statement about women and sexuality, and I am now the power. I'm now in the power position, because if that's what sex is, is power and domination and about self-consumption. If women shut their hearts off, they win that game. And so now what we're seeing is men deeply paralyzed in the culture because of the aggressiveness of women. So we have flipped that on its head in many ways. And so we now have female sexual addiction is on the rise like nothing else and starting to rival male sexual addiction as a result of it. So you've seen uh, hundreds, I mean, maybe, maybe more um, people in your office. Um, could you speak to, because I think it, for a lot of people, this all feels like a really hopeless, if you've been sexually abused or you've you uh, participated in, in the hookup culture and, and you're either coming into marriage or maybe you're single and, and you've been through all of that, um, what, what sort of healing have you seen? Is it possible? You know, could you give us a little hope? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I say to people who say that to me, because I go, how do you sit in your office and hear these stories? And, and, and I go, I get up every day because of this. Because I, and when a woman or a man walks in my office and they say, is it possible? I go, oh, it is so possible because of the one. I don't know. I'll tell you the truth. I don't know how it's possible apart from the one. Because the journey is about being restored to the garden. That's 
that's all our journeys, by the way, guys, regardless of whether what your sexual story is. We're all ultimately being restored back to the garden. That's what we're created for. That's what we're made for. And so to begin to do battle, to help people see who, what we're talking about tonight, what I'm created for, what sex is really supposed to be, what, what I'm supposed to be. And here's, I love, there's a guy, there's a great podcast. We were going to talk about resources later. There's a great podcast by Adam Young called The Places We Find Ourselves. It is a, uh, it's a, a storytelling, but it, it deals a lot with sexual recovery. And one of the things he talks about, and I love it when someone, something I've known, don't you love it when someone gives language to something you've kind of known, but their language is like, oh, that, yes. He talks about the places of our greatest wounding when, when redeemed become our places of greatest gifting to the world. They become our calling. And I believe that with my whole, I have my own story of abuse and in my own journey of healing and now walking with so many people to reclaim that. Part of the reason I'm so passionate about that is I've had to redeem my, my own stories had to be redeemed, right? And so I can offer hope to somebody else when they're in that dark place. And to say, look, we're going to hit a place that you're going to want to quit and you're going to think this is way too much and way too hard. And I'm telling you, we're just at the breakthrough place. Don't give up on me when we hit that. Because God is about rewriting our stories and the things that the enemy intended to destroy you and to destroy the image of God in you. That's the whole point of the cross. That's the whole point of the resurrection is there's hope there. These places can be redeemed. And that is, it's a hard journey. It's a lot of work. It is not like, oh, wow, just met Jesus and it's all better. That's certainly not just the journey. That's a beginning point. It's not the journey. The journey is a lot of hard work, a lot of grief, a lot of new perspective and seeing, having our minds transformed over time. It's long and arduous work, but work that is so worth it. So, Yes, there's hope. For marriages, let me tell you, if your marriage has struggled sexually, there's hope there. But it, you have to do that whole person work. It's not just, couples come in my office. So it's a really interesting dynamic when I move to the South. Men don't come see female counselors, except to fix their wives about sex. So they will come in my office about that and then we can get down and do the real work that needs to happen. They come in wanting me to make their wives better sex partners, right? Um, and then we get down to the work of real relationship and the whole person nature of sex. And once, once couples do that work, sex has, it's the fruit, it's the byproduct of all that good whole person work, right? And I don't mean to make that light or whatever, but if you've done that, no, if, if someone has done the trust work of being known emotionally, spiritually, mentally, giving themselves over physically is the most natural thing ever in a marriage. But two things we have a hard time talking about, sex and money, right? And, we, and that they reveal places of insecurity, they reveal places of shame in us. All kinds of agendas get caught up in that, and unless we begin to understand and know that, then we're set up, they become lightning rod subjects in a marriage. Thank you, Teresa. Yeah. That was really great. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, feel free to give Teresa a hand.